0: This is a process where the world is trying to collectively and peacefully totally restructure the global economy. That is really, really hard. And there's no shame in that sometimes that that goes wrong.
1: Right now, look, I am currently embroiled in a domestic dispute, the details of which will become clear as we go through this podcast. But it's got me thinking about negotiation, about how to get your way. Do I even know what I want? Do I know how to get it? Have I got more or less power than I think I have? That is all interesting stuff. And then that got me thinking about society and how it works and how we're all kind of negotiating with each other all the time. Sometimes explicitly, like when there are train strikes going on, but more often than that, just as part of moving around, literally moving around. We don't bump into each other on the pavement. We're all kind of negotiating out of each other's way. The whole of our relationships, particularly some of our professional ones, might be negotiations. It's absolutely critical. And I've often thought I'm not very good at it, so I thought I would speak to someone who is Joining me this week on Your Brain on Climate is the wonderful Camilla Bourne. Camilla Bourne MBE, no less. And she got that MBE for her role in negotiation. Amongst other things, she was the Deputy Director of Strategy and the Advisor to the COP26 President, Alok Sharma. So at the talks in Glasgow last year, she was there behind the scenes. You will see pictures of the COP President, and behind the COP President is Camilla. She was at the cutting edge of negotiations and some of the most important stuff upon which humanity has ever negotiated and she understands how to do it when it works when it doesn't work and she's got a really interesting kind of view of the surrounding picture so not just what happens inside the cloistered halls of negotiation but all the stuff around it what makes governments do anything in the first place on the one hand they've got pressure from campaigners and extinction rebellions and people saying you must all do this or you're a bastard but on the other hand They've got the reality of people's lives and money and economics and finance and how quickly it's possible to do things. And they've got all of that on a global scale. And it sounds bloody exhausting. And also kind of exhilarating. So I asked Camilla all about not just her experiences in negotiating on climate change, but negotiation as a thing and how each of us can be better negotiators, including when it comes to thinking about what we want to happen about the planet. As always, when you hear this noise, it denotes wisdom. That means I've put a little note in the show notes where you can find out more about a thing that has just been said by someone wise, which is almost certainly in this case, not me thank you to everyone who sponsors me on patreon that allows me to pay my guests for coming on which i think is really really important i'm taking their time they're important clever busy people you can join them by going to patreon If you go to your brain on climate so www.patreon.com slash your brain on climate get better at saying that dave and thank you to the people who email me telling me they like the show share it make everyone aware of it. I'm on Twitter at Brain Climate. You can email me at hello at yourbrainonclimate.com. Right, on with it. So here is the chat with Camilla. And I started out by broaching the delicate matter of my domestic negotiation, which I am absolutely firmly losing. Your brain, brain, brain on climate. Thank you so much for joining me on Your Brain on Climate. And I want to talk to you about negotiation, which is a thing I think I'm pretty shit at. (laughs) I think I'm pretty shit at it in my personal life. Um, We're currently negotiating, my wife and I, about the toilet seat, and I'm definitely, definitely not negotiating well about that. Um, And in just in general, I think some people, you know when you meet people and they're just amazing at negotiation. So you must be one of them people that just always gets what they want, right?
0: I give it my best shot. I wouldn't say always, um, and I can't say always because otherwise I'd be, you know, giving all my my cards away and and showing how I, how I operate.
1: Ah, oh, she's clever. All right, okay. I see how it works. Um But do you were you kind of always a negotiator? Like, do you think you were born to do it?
0: I think I was always someone who wanted to work towards the, what I considered to be the right answer, <laughs> which I guess <laughs> is that. I mean, if you ask my parents, I think they'd they'd probably agree with that.
1: Well, kids are superb negotiators, though, aren't Mm -hmm. they? Like, considering that they have really no power and they don't have a hand, but they play it very well.
0: Exactly. So, you know, I started
1: early. So, tell me some of the things that. In fact, let's take a step back. What is negotiation, would you say? Like, how do you, you know, if someone says to you, you, what do you do? What is negotiation?
0: So, I think it's when you are, if you have an outcome in mind that you're trying to achieve whatever that is, Um, if that is that you want to eat a particular thing for dinner that evening. And then you have to engage with the people or the person or the country or whoever it is to get to that outcome. So you need to work with them to get yourself there. And a lot of it is about putting yourself in their shoes, having the empathy, but also using the power that you have. So if we go back to a, a... parent-child situation if you're the parent it's a lot easier to to push on the child and um, what you want as as the outcome but then again if you're a potentially a difficult child and you've got lots of power over dinner time and your parents are exhausted by the fact that you never eat with them <laughs> then perhaps you have more power in that situation and therefore you can push it through or it might be that you enlist a sibling and that sibling is the one that helps you to get to the outcome so we're constantly negotiating our way through life and, um, you know, it's about getting what you want, really.
1: We'll come... I really want to talk about all the different bits of, like, power and stuff, because that that's all really relevant when we go and talk about climate change stuff. But it is really interesting, isn't it, that often... Do you think people have more power than they realize sometimes and part of the job is realizing what power you have
0: yeah definitely i mean i think people sort of go around uh you know different roles different jobs different experiences in life looking for power but you just have to step into it and use it for what you can and the power is for the taking it's it's not sort of innate and given obviously there are some authoritative positions that you might be in that mean that you have more of it and um, but still a lot of the time people just want to get to that, that you might find others that have power that want to get to an answer and so you have to step into your power and work with that with them but it's it's a it's a journey you explore it um and, and you find it. And I think that if you're if you're organized and you know what you want, you can manifest a lot
1: of power. What do we want? More equitable treatment in the hands of management. When do we want it? Soon. Oh, very good, right. We're gonna learn by the end of this episode you were gonna teach me how to recognise and manifest my own power. Um Frankly I could have done with you several years ago. Right. <laughs> Let's talk about some of the bits within negotiation that are kind of interesting brain-wise and if I say to, uh, I was I was reading a thing as will be evident if I say to you anchoring bias does that mean does that mean anything to you or have I just plucked a silly word out of thing?
0: Well it doesn't mean anything to me Ah
1: right but anchoring <laughs> so bias I, I
0: want to hear all about it
1: Anchoring bias you, you, you know what this is anchoring bias it says in this thing that I read is the idea that if you say to me how much the thing cost and I say uh, I give you a number I say that's 20 quid then you immediately form an, an impression of the sort of worth of something based on what I've told you first of all. So it's probably in my interest to think very carefully about what I say to you first because you're going to negotiate on the back of it. Like if you your, your role is to haggle downwards, so I better make sure I've given you a high price that you can haggle down from, right? That kind of thing.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And presumably that happens in negotiation all the time when you don't turn up at the table if you're going to negotiate with someone and say – here's my final offer and it actually is your final offer like you actually kind of want to give something that seems unreachable so that people can kind of chip you down from it right
0: that's definitely one negotiation strategy but it does depend on who you're turning up with some people respond best to the final offer and that they might be responding to that because you've already got a a um, pre-relationship which means that that's how you operate together so Absolutely recognise that kind of strategy and I think it's incredibly common, especially when the players don't know each other as well, but it's not the only way of doing it. I always say that you need the spectrum to find the middle and that's why, you know, so much in when you're trying to get to any kind of outcome, having your, your radical flanks is so important to be able to find that middle. And, you know, I have a huge amount of I know I'm not going to talk about climate too much, but I have a huge amount of respect for for, um, activists uh, and and more radical activists, because there's no way that I would be able to to broker my kind of more consensus middle if you didn't have that that radical flank as well.
1: Right. I'm taking a note of that and we're going to come back to that. So if that interests you, we're going to talk about this later on. Great. Radical flank, because, yes, that's important. Right. And some people aren't really in the business of negotiating really anyway. Right. They're just like, well, this is this is it, take it or leave it. But I advise you to take it because otherwise I'm going to do stuff that annoys you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you need people like that.
1: Very good. Okay. Another, Also in this thing that I read um, is uh, that you should negotiate the negotiation. And I was like, what? what's that talking about? But that presumably, because you've done a lot of work like with big government-y things, quite a large part of the job is going, what is it we're even talking about? Like kind of what? what is it that's up for grabs, right?
0: I think that's true. I think also sometimes you can negotiate the negotiations so that you can get away with not getting to the outcome and use it as a delay tactic. I remember being at one negotiation session in, in Bonn. It was a sort of a pre-sessional meeting for the UN climate talks, the big ones, the cops at the end of the year. And, um, I think it was Russia at the time, just held up negotiations for a week and wouldn't adopt the agenda because they were contesting something on it. So you can negotiate the norms of the process and a lot of conversation is spent on process, not just outcomes.
1: So like in the the leaving the toilet seat up example, we could spend ages negotiating whether or not I leave the toilet seat up or down Um, or we could negotiate whether or not we're going to have a conversation about whether or not I leave the toilet seat up or down um right
0: yeah absolutely you can you can extrapolate you know even further let's talk about the cultural context in this. the power dynamics that you're bringing to this conversation is it even appropriate that we start having this conversation do you understand what you're doing (laughs) there's all sorts of ways to play it if you don't want to get to the end game
1: fab fab i'm taking notes on this superb (laughs) stuff um do you have a position on the whole toilet seat thing
0: uh, do I have a position Yeah I think that again I'm right and I can negotiate myself to a happy household and have done so so i'm I'm all good. <laughs>
1: And does it help with negotiation to be an unfeeling, unemotional robot? Like, are they the best negotiators, people who can just be kind of calm and calculated or how important is emotions in the whole thing?
0: So I think that's a tactic. I also think, you know, I've worked in international negotiations, so I see it from different cultures and some cultures are like that and they deploy that part of their cultural selves although they normally have a really good understanding of the international in that if they're in that space to their advantage so that they don't have to waste time with people lobbying them because everyone knows nope that's just who they are and how they are and you have to work around it or work with it or whatever um so that can definitely work but in general I think you need quite a lot of empathy and I think that people underestimate how much that empathy is very local. (laughs) So there's an empathy for, you know, grand things like the unfairness of climate change. Um, But there's also an an empathy which is, oh, you've just got off a really long flight or I've known you for 20 years and Mm -hmm. I know that you're having a tough time with your child. And all of those social dynamics play out. Uh, I won't say the process, but um, there was once a, a, a sort of period of negotiations that I was involved in um, and I had various um, PhD um, students interviewing me for writing their their theses and asking me about it and they were saying you know why has this country moved in such a radical way this was a big turning point and I can tell you that the person was ill and there was a replacement and that's what moved this international mm. position and those things happen all the time so you mm. know there's a lot of of being human in negotiation um, and i hope that chat gtp will not replace that because we need some of that randomness as well as design in getting to the right answers de Paris pour le est
1: it's always struck me as ridiculous that the bit at the end of the climate talks is the bit when all the final deals are kind of done. And those bits are normally when people have been up for 48 hours (laughs) and it's four in the morning. And presumably there's an awful lot of like, all right, fine. Jesus Christ. Yes. Happens at a human level.
0: Yeah. I think there's some of that, although, I mean, it's a huge amount of responsibility in that kind of context because you're bringing the weight of your country with you. And at the end of a negotiation, Everyone needs to go home with something for them. So if that is the example of a child asking their parents for a particular thing for dinner, perhaps the parents go home with the relief that they um, the child actually wants to eat and, and is going to be present at the table and the child gets what they want. If it's an international negotiations, you know, you've got to consider that a climate vulnerable country has to go home to their people and say, we made progress and it's going to be okay. You've also got to consider that a petro state needs to be able to go home and say, don't worry, we're going to continue to be able to make the money that we need to keep our economy on the road and protect our people. So it's always a little bit of a, you know, you've got to find the compromise, you've got to find the landing ground. Um so I do, I'm always really impressed with how much people are able to sort of hold themselves together, because it's much bigger than the individuals at the end, um, in the end. But it's not to say that those that's not the only deal that's gone on. There will be a series of deals that have already happened in capitals. There will be sort of quiet bilateral agreements ahead of time. There will be, you know, things done and decided. And then you have a kind of sequencing so that you can get to things um, over time as well so that that kind of bit that hits the headlines is very much the, the end of it but that's also very important for the story that gets told and sometimes the wrong story gets told because we fixate on that end piece and it's not an accurate reflection really of of everything that's come together.
1: Well, you mean like we'll look at the did the talks achieve a commitment to I don't know 1.5 degrees or something like that, and they'll look at that and I go pass or fail basically on the basis of yeah. that. But actually, there's so much else has happened. Um, or for
0: example, so in in Glasgow, the end of the talks was a conversation about do we say coal phase out or coal phase down. I have been working on it for two years and telling everyone, we're doing all this work on coal. You know, the critical things are that countries decide that they're going to stop financing coal. They're going to build no new coal. They're going to decide to phase out coal. We will have a conversation in and around negotiations, but it's very, very, very unlikely that any of that text will be in negotiations because there's no precedent for it. And it would be a very different state of affairs. And then it was in the text. And then I thought at some point this is going to get taken out. And then it was still there. (laughs) And that became the sort of end game play out. But in a way, that was like the cherry on the cake. We'd already baked the cake. We'd already made a huge amount of progress. But the fixation was, did something happen around this? And this is partly because people need to be able to tell stories around these moments. Mm. And... It's hard because no one meeting is going to solve climate change, right? You don't ride off thinking, woohoo, it's climate change. But you can say, OK, we've built momentum and confidence into it. we built momentum and confidence out of it. It was a turning point. It moved this thing forward. But it's one piece of the puzzle and you've got to use it as effectively as possible. But it's not the be all and end all.
1: Sounds bloody exhausting, Camilla. It is. Is like, Is it is it proper proper negotiation? Is it exhausting?
0: Yeah, it's really exhausting, and um, because you, you know, and it, 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 this kind of logic of nothing's agreed until everything's agreed in international negotiations is really hard because you've got this sort of house of cards, and one could be pulled out at any moment, and you just don't know. So you mean so just, just by stress, that you mean
1: that like there's there's a final agreement, and that agreement's only going to happen when all the, everyone's happy with all the bits of it, kind of. Thing.
0: Yeah, because yeah. you've basically got to say this is being agreed, and have no one blocking it. So you have to be pretty confident that there's a kind of shared understanding of that. And that's very powerful because that means that, you know, it's the only forum in the world where you've got the smallest country standing next to the biggest country and has equal power to be able to disrupt that. Obviously, in reality, they don't have equal power because they have different political standings, different economic standings, different social standings, and, you can't, and also personality as well, different charisma. And you can't underestimate that. But nonetheless... You know there is the potential to do that and and that is a very powerful um setup
1: Mm. so last question before we move off and negotiation as a thing and i'm sure i could talk to you about this all day but i did want to talk about the empathy thing we talked about it a minute ago do you have like what do you mean when you say you've got to have empathy for people do you mean which of the following a you you know you're talking to a human and you kind of want to understand their position because that's nice or do you mean you're talking to a human and you want to understand their position so you can defeat it like is it how sort of cynical is the empathy i saw a phrase um professor sonny leard used called tactical empathy the idea that you're basically using it to win is that fair
0: i think it depends on the situation you can absolutely have both and i recognize both um it also depends on the person Like you might even have within the same country, a person who is more tactical with their empathy and a person who is more genuine with the empathy. The person who's genuine with the empathy in my view is able to sort of make it last longer Mm -hmm. and have more impact over time. um, Whereas the tactical one burns bridges more quickly, but you kind of pull those cards at the moments where you have to. And again, especially when you're doing negotiation as a job it's much bigger than you like it's you're negotiating for your country for your business for your family whatever it is and it's not just about you and how you play it so sometimes you have to do things which you as an individual may not always want to do and that's sort of part of the course of 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 taking on that role.
1: Do you think it's a thing you can learn or are some people just really good at it? Is it one of those things that when uh, some people are born to be great negotiators?
0: So I definitely think you can learn and I've definitely learned a lot. And, um, you know, I was I think I had a kind of natural instinct for it. Um in in a professional sense, having you know done it with my parents, um, but uh, yeah, you can definitely learn and hone it, hone those skills. I think things that you can't learn, and again, shouldn't be underestimated, is that obviously the kind of privileges and biases that you have help or hinder. And there are some people that you talk to who are very good at sort of playing the idiot. But they're actually very smart and use it, like, to their advantage. Mm. And there are some people who, you know, like, my accent certainly helps. Like, I have a kind of BBC English accent or whatever. It's,
1: it's very nice. I'm enjoying <laughs> listening to it. And I would do whatever it told me to. <laughs> yeah.
0: But, and also in an international negotiation, like, I'm a well-spoken, clear-spoken English native speaker, and it's done in English. Like, that has a power to it. Yeah. And it's easier to hold the pen so there are all of those dynamics that play out as well um, and which give you uh, a strategic advantage so you can definitely learn you can definitely improve uh, you can also manifest your power in different ways like maybe you get learnt, known as a personality so there's been some small countries who you know have sort of played the media game a little bit and that has given them a power that is much bigger than other comparable small countries or they, I don't know, went to school in the US so they are able to speak really good English and that gives them a power. So it's, there's all these different ways of sort of acquiring tools and skills and advantages which really help you to, to be more and more effective. Your brain,
1: Your brain on, on climate. climate. Brill. Okay, right. So we have talked a bit about kind of negotiation at the human level, and um, what I wanted to ask you is, if we didn't have it, would we have this society? What we've got, like, is is all of society kind of one big negotiation?
0: I think we all negotiate on a daily basis. We negotiate with ourselves to work out what we want.
1: Oh hello, she's, <laughs> what going, she's do. going deep again. What do you, exactly. mean, what do you mean by that? Give an example.
0: Uh, so I haven't had any breakfast today. Oh. I'm going to have a negotiation with myself about what kind of breakfast I'm going to have, depending on <laughs> how hungry I am, how uh, healthy I'm feeling, how easily I'm going to be seduced by the delicious Cornetti, which is like a croissant, basically, um, that they look in, in, the, um, in the coffee bar. So that's a negotiation with yourself, trading off on all of these these choices. Um, And then you have to negotiate your way with choices with other people, if that is your partner, as you say, in your your home context. And there's a lot of negotiation there, as we know. Um, Or if that is negotiation about with your employer or Mm -hmm. with your community or more broadly. So yeah, I think negotiation is sort of part and parcel to making decisions effectively and so it's something that we're all part of all of the time Uh, and yeah it's part of how we navigate
1: the world well literally as well I was something that jumped into mind was walking down the street is a negotiation isn't it like how how amazing is it that we don't all bump into each other and the Mm -hmm. reason we don't is because we're all kind of negotiating the space um, and you can see sometimes, you know, s- stupid people who won't get out of the way, who just think they've got the space, who are using the power they've got to just kind of barrel through. Yeah. And at a micro level, that's what's going on there, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's It's the world we live in. It's having a relationship with the others around us and, and getting things done in the process, be that walking down the street.
1: And we are a social... Species like all of these skyscrapers that we built and these international agreements and all of this stuff has only happened through people working together, which requires negotiation, presumably.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You have to get those things signed off. Um, And even in, you know, a more authoritarian kind of context, there's still a negotiation. That person is still having to decide within their context and they're never going to be fully alone in that about what they're going to do.
1: Well, sometimes I guess we we have examples of like when negotiation comes to the fore. I mean, you've you've worked on the the climate talks, but as we record, UK is still got loads of strikes happening all over it. Um, there's been strikes, and then more strikes, and more strikes, and loads of negotiations, or the, at least theoretical negotiations between the unions who represent various trades and the government who represent the government. And there's an awful lot of kind of posturing goes on and an awful lot of negotiation seems to sort of happen in the court of public opinion rather than actually around the negotiation table and is that where power comes in like is a large part of the ability of say a train union to get what they want the extent to which the public see are on their side and you have to play that game do you think
0: so i definitely think public opinion is a huge tool in negotiation and it's interesting. So I worked outside of government in civil society, and then I went into government to work on the the UN climate talks in Glasgow. And I thought potentially that I would go into government and realise that civil society is sort of less important because governments can make decisions. And I have to say, I found that actually civil society is more important and doesn't take itself seriously enough. um, when I was inside government, so you know, that that kind of broader ecosystem, that working of an, the inside and the outside of a negotiation is really part of the alchemy of landing those kind of big deals. So, of course, there will be people on both the government and the union side trying to run different media strategies. They will d- be doing polling. They might do stunts that help to tell the story in a way that they want to, to move it in that direction. And they will use the theatre of the outside to help them set up the space for the inside they will also use the theatre of the outside to frame up what the acceptable landing ground is because again Mm. in a negotiation you want to walk away where everyone feels that they've got something and they've saved face and that is important otherwise it will just fall apart because everyone will say well what's it in this for me
1: but that's so important just on the interpersonal level isn't it like i think about squabbles that you have and they generally end when they end with both people feeling that they were sort of right in a way that's how you move on from it a little bit so that happens as well kind of at the you know around the negotiating table does it
0: yeah or mutually wrong sometimes it can go either way um but yeah everyone has to walk away with something otherwise you know you you either it blows up and then you'd have to come back together anyway or you know you could be completely polarized but The reason you're talking to one another is because you have a mutual interest in coming to an outcome. And that's what people do to resolve union disputes and that's what people will do to help us deal with international climate change Um, issue now uh, it's of course very unlikely the government's going to do anything of the sort in fact they're pursuing a a strategy that's completely opposite of what extinction rebellion is asking for the government is in fact expanding oil and gas extraction in the. you said a thing in passing there which is about
1: how civil society groups actually have more power than they might think so like climate campaigning sort of groups tell me tell me a bit a bit more about that and what you mean and how they maybe don't use don't recognize the power they've got
0: so i think that the one of the things that civil society can do is that it has an independence that means it can talk to many more actors so when you are a government you may be part of a country group but you and you can talk to your group but that information quite often that civil society has from their various contracts across various governments is sometimes more sophisticated Because they have trust with those governments in a way that another government, yes, they may have some trust and individuals will have built trusted relationships, but it is a bit different. So sometimes civil society can see the bigger picture better than um, government can. I also think that civil society can be helpful in sort of pushing the envelope, pushing the focus of the media into a particular spot to, to push the, you know, Sort of load on the expectations in a space. And sometimes that can be really helpful and sometimes that can be really unhelpful. Um, I think that. Y- do you mean
1: like around a climate talks when civil society can say, like, one talk to save the planet? This is it. We've all got to come out of here with a great outcome or we're all going to die immediately. That kind of thing.
0: Yeah. Or, you know, oh, well, these talks are definitely going to do, I don't know. Uh, stop all gas uh, exploration and yep. it's like well that's just not even on the agenda Like, it's just not feasible mm. and like please don't lead people down the garden path because there's no conversation but at the same time sometimes raising that as a prospect may mean that a few years later it becomes something because people have to have some kind of conversation and it moves things forward so you know there's a there's a bit of randomness to it as well i think that some civil society you know You're never going to be in a situation, I don't think, out of a a UN climate talks where all civil society is happy with the outcome. And that is part of the job of some parts of civil society. There are also other parts of civil society that play more of a brokering role and and do more bridging. And they are incredibly important as well for helping define what pragmatic good looks like. And it's in everyone's interests for these talks not to fail, mm. even those who want things to go slower because they want to protect their vested interests. those are That's a completely legitimate reason for, for slowing things down. But everyone knows that we have to deal with climate change and everyone knows the direction of travel and everyone is working towards that. And, you know, I broadly believe that there is that kind of good in, in that direction. So helping to, to work out what that landing ground is and, and push things is is really important and I think civil society should recognize and, and take that power and own it and and take themselves a little bit more seriously sometimes.
1: This is important, isn't it? And do you think that the likes of Extinction Rebellion who will say stuff like I mean I think they've stopped saying this kind of thing quite so much, but will say stuff like, Right, in five years we want the entire economy off fossil fuels. That's what we want. Is that helpful? for you in the work that you do for the sort of compromising negotiations of getting stuff done?
0: I think it's a tactic. um, And I think that if that helped more people to understand that we needed to get to net zero and we also, because of the consequences of not, and also that we needed to get there fast, that's really important when it's then going a bit slower and it's hard that People want to be part of that and want to have a government that is helping deliver that, and want to have businesses and investors and community groups and everything also delivering that and recognizing the value of it. So it's not unhelpful. I think that that the target around 2025 net zero um, was probably too um, like wasn't feasible. In a way that was providing a middle ground but it did have a kind of disruptive awareness raising and also does help to pull that part of the spectrum so that the middle of say 2050 even though that is fast for the amount of economic transformation that's going to happen (laughs) yeah (laughs) Yeah. still makes it look sort of much much easier Mm. um and so maybe that that maybe that helps prevent it from drifting to a 2060 or 2070 that's kind of part of the logic I think that however being that radical means that you then like you're not the ones who are necessarily engaging with government around policy decisions you are more using a kind of political movement that then others from that can engage and you know there are many other climate organizations think tanks. Etc. cetera, who can do that off the back of XR's kind of mobilisation. Yeah. I think where they went wrong is they started to alienate people with some of their actions and obviously now they've rebased and um, are trying to have a more inclusive space again and to my mind that's exciting. Not to say that you shouldn't have also the really radical campaigners who are doing the disruptive things because we've seen time and time again that is part of social change um but different people have to play different roles if we really want to get to the outcomes and then doing that is not going to overnight change um the the outcome to, to something really radical like net zero 2025 but then being part of that broader movement as well as you know a boring person like me <laughs> being part of the broader oh. movement is um Really important so that you can move things forward. It's a, a sum of its parts, it's not just one or the other.
1: It seems that what we're talking about, we're talking about negotiation, but we're kind of talking about compromise really, as well. I did think about calling this episode Compromise. And you see, the thing that's, I guess, troubling me is that you, you might get two very different analyses of the problem going on, and I want to know where you land on this, which is the world that you inhabit and have inhabited, which basically goes, look, in practice, we can't do this all incredibly quickly overnight. We're going to have to do some compromising, right? And life being one big compromise, and just the reality, the grubby kind of reality of politics and stuff. And on the other end, you've got the people who look at the planet and how naused it is and say, I don't want to compromise on that, because if I do, we're all going to die. And it seems that somewhere in the middle of that is a problem. Like, how should we actually be... Is it acceptable to compromise on ending all coal production in the next 10 years, say, when you think about all life on Earth and its survival and that...
0: So, my only issue with the word compromise is it sounds boring and it sounds negative. And yeah. I think that it's important that these things aren't. And you are right that, you know, the impacts of compromising on some of these issues have consequences and they have consequences for the planet. But I also think we need to remember that. The impacts of not compromising would also have consequences for the planet and people. And I will say, I don't care about climate change. Climate change is totally hypothetical. A, de- a degree of warming, what does that even mean? But I do care about what climate change does to the things I care about. Okay. And so if that is. Um, you know the food that I eat if that's the way I'm able to engage with my family if that's the landscapes that we see and we experience and are part of our our personal histories and our collective histories if that's about fairness um, locally or internationally or or whatever those things are those are things I actually care about and to really understand how much risk we want to take in terms of fast implementation fast action to deal with climate change and how much risk we want to take to deal with the reality of climate change you've really got to look at all of those trade-offs we're in a situation now that our life is living with climate change now that that's what the future is We're also living with transition and that's what the future is and we have to make a bunch of different choices in that context about what that life's going to be looking like I think for a long time the climate space sort of depicted this oh this is a utopia if we deal with climate change and that was okay when it was a bit more fringe because it was like a nice green pure clean utopia but this is the mainstream you know in the mainstream things happen that we don't like corruption things happen that we don't like huge profits you know These kind of ideas that the public, I say we as a a kind of general public opinion perspective, we don't like that unfairness. We don't like that grubbiness. um, And but that is the reality of mainstream economies. It's not to say that you shouldn't push for better, push for more, but we will have an impact. You know, we do not walk on this planet without having an impact, even if that is your footprints in the dirt. That is the reality of being part of it. And we have to do that responsibly. We have to make choices. But everything we do has consequences. And anything we do, be that doing nothing or doing something, has consequences too. And we have to bear those things in mind. We have to be careful though. We shouldn't overthink this. It's happening to us already. (laughs) So we've just gotta get on with it. But it's not, there will be losers and there will be winners. And who those losers and winners are is our negotiation, is our battle for power and how we navigate the future.
1: Human society inherently is built on kind of messy compromises all over the place. And the art of governing, I suppose, and of keeping, even in democracies, is of kind of balancing out like harms and benefits and kind of having a... The thing of that, and if what you're trying to do is do a global version of that, you are inherently you, you're in that world, right? Like you can't make 150 governments, whatever it is, do something overnight that would just get them voted out the next day. It's not going to happen, right? And I suppose that's the reality of it. Just somewhere in there, you can see why some people are like, no, but no, but look, look at look look at all life on Earth, and kind of having that you know that higher level problem.
0: Absolutely. But, you know, the UN climate talks are really important. They send really important signals to to governments, to businesses, to investors, to communities to do things differently. But they are only one piece of the puzzle. And the only reason that they can send those signals is because countries come together, having made policy choices at home that they can then bring to the table as their negotiation positions. So it's not like this all happens over a two week period in a bizarre conference centre. This is a process where the world is trying to collectively and peacefully totally restructure the global economy. (laughs) That is really, really
1: hard. Hmm.
0: And there's no shame in that sometimes that that goes
1: wrong. Yeah, a global economy that only exists because of fossil fuels in the form that it's in right now. So the demand to take fossil fuels out of it is necessarily a big job, right?
0: Yeah, but it's also the system we live in, you know, like I have the lights on here, I have this laptop ch- plugged in, you know. I thought, there you, I thought been... you cared
1: about the planet, Clara.
0: <laughs> exactly. There's no way in being purist on this. And, you know, the people who want to prevent action from happening around climate change, they lean into let's be pure, because then you get paralysed. And we don't live in that world. We have to make these trade-offs. And, you know, I was remember watching a, a, a political panel debate with Nigel Farage, and he was asked, do you care about climate change? And he said, I fly, of course I do. And that shuts down every single person who flies. And, you know, I hold my hands up, I also fly. And, you know, that doesn't mean I shouldn't be fighting for more climate action and, and leaning into those better choices that we should be making. So... You know, we've got to be we've got to be careful with this. We've got to empower. We've got to help make choices. And trying to do this peacefully is hard. When you look back at every single economic big shift in the past, it's not always been peaceful. And there will be elements of it that will be difficult and and not peaceful. But it does give me hope that 197 parties are able to come together at these UN climate talks and walk away with something that is real testament to that shared understanding of that we do have to deal with this problem and it's deeply imperfect it's deeply frustrating it's tough really really tough but super super impactful to show you how
1: to do it what you want to
0: do is you want to grab somewhere preferably at the top
1: gently lower the toilet seat down you don't want to make any loud noises Boom! right okay last thing before yeah, i let you go and have course, your um what are those things called Cornettis? cornetti? uh camilla's in italy by the way she's not like just found some very <laughs> fancy italian deli um last thing three tips to help each of us be better negotiators what should we all be mindful of off you go
0: uh know what you want right. quite often people don't actually know what they want and so you can't negotiate for something you don't know what you want um secondly i would say that piece around empathy so i believe you should have it rather than tactically use it not to say that it doesn't okay, get tactically right, hang on, wait used write
1: this down get some <laughs> empathy all right yeah, good
0: yeah. um but i think that's also very important for not being disappointed because if you have empathy then you can you can find out where you you might you can have a perspective on on where you might actually land and thirdly i would say play the long game mm-hmm. um, because sometimes you're negotiating to- just in the moment but quite a lot of things that were introduced into any negotiation at some point may not pay dividends for 10 years but at some point it might come back around so you've got to you know have your coffee be awake be dealing with your little thing that you're trying to have to do at that particular moment especially if you've been up all night if it's in a international climate context but you also need to think what what is it here that we're setting a precedent for or scratching an itch on that means that next year there's going to be an itch and we might be able to move even further forward
1: and i guess is it really worth it in the first place if the thing you are negotiating on i.e whether or not i should put the toilet seat down i know i should put the toilet seat down stop looking at me like that um is is just just put the bloody toilet seat down it's not worth the hassle you'll just fall out with your wife right
0: <laughs> i mean I, I think that is the correct answer
1: camilla thank you so much i want to say thank you on behalf of the planet because i know how much work you have done and how important you've been to the agreements that, we, that we've got just thank you for that thank you for coming on here on your brain on climate is there anything uh any way people can follow you get in touch with what you do and say and think
0: Sure. uh, You can find me on Twitter. It's a very original handle. It's at Camilla Bourne uh, and Bourne is spelled B-O-R-N.
1: Right. Wonderful stuff. Thank you, Camilla. Thank you so much. I did mean what I said there, that I think uh, people like Camilla just... Don't get anywhere near enough love for the work that they do, which, you know, is the grubby, horrible, sweaty, exhausting reality of getting people in a room and not letting them out until they've agreed to do something and having to manage it so that people actually leave feeling like they've won, even if actually they haven't. I think that is a skill, and, you know, it's all very well getting some top tips, but thank you, Camilla. Top, top stuff. Right, that's it. I will be back next month with more of this. Do share the word about the podcast. Um, Write a review, please, with your hands. A couple of people have been doing that in the last month, but I'd love a lot more. It makes such a massive difference. If you've enjoyed this episode, go to iTunes. I think that's the best thing to do. And just say how much you like the show. It honestly, honestly helps hugely. You can email me hello at yourbrainonclimate.com or I'm on the Patreon and I'm on the Patreon at patreon.com slash yourbrainonclimate if you want to chuck in a few quid to help me get great guests for the future and say thank you for the show. Right, I am off. I am off to recommence negotiations, although uh, I think I might just put the bloody toilet seat down and be done with it, eh? Okay, bye.